and welcome to the Multicultural Middle Ages podcast, presented by the Medieval Academy of America. My name is Sarah Iftdecker, and I'm a professor of history at Rhodes College in Memphis, Tennessee. Before that, I was a postdoc in the Bourne's Jewish Studies program at Indiana University. And before that, I received my PhD from Yale University in 2017. I'm a historian of the medieval Western Mediterranean, and my work focuses in particular on intersections between gender and religious difference. To give you a bit of a sense of uh, what that means, I have two books related to that topic that came out in 2022. The first of these, Jewish Women in the Medieval World, 500 to 1500, is a survey and source book published by Rutledge. And the other, The Fruit of Her Hands, Jewish and Christian Women's Work in Medieval Catalan Cities, is the book based on my dissertation, making it very exciting to see it out in the world, and is, as you can gather from the title, an exploration of the different experiences that Jewish and Christian women had in the cities of Barcelona, Girona, and Vic in Catalonia as they attempted to work, support their families, support themselves, and pursue a variety of different labor opportunities. Today I'm going to be talking in particular about Jewish women and thinking in general through the broader question of why it is that studying medieval Jewish women matters. So already when describing my work, I've used the term intersections and said that I work on intersections between gender and religious difference. A crucial framework for my work and for some of the discussions that we're going to be having today is the concept of intersectionality coined by the scholar Kimberly Crenshaw in 1989 as a way of addressing the distinct experiences of Black women in the United States, so as opposed to white women or as opposed to Black men. Essentially, the idea behind the concept of intersectionality is that factors like race, class, gender, sexual orientation intersect to shape people's lived experiences, and as well that marginalization, oppression, and exclusion are experienced differently depending on these intersecting categories of identity. And a key part of this is that the categories intersect, so not that your experiences are just added on top of one another, but that you would have a fundamentally different experience based on how these different categories of identity intersect with one another. One of the major goals of my work is to apply this framework to Jewish women in the medieval world, who, as I will explain shortly, experienced marginalization both as women and as Jews. And it is a contention of mine that Jewish women, in accordance with this framework of intersectionality, had fundamentally different experiences both from male members of the Jewish community and from women who belong to the Christian or Muslim ruling faiths. This is a major reason why I argue studying medieval Jewish women matters, that we can better understand both Jewish history and women's history, and I think ultimately medieval history in general, if we consider the distinct lived experiences of Jewish women as part of this overall story. So 
before we get into some of the details, I wanted to provide a little bit of general background, first on the legal status of Jews, as well as on what it might have been like to live as a Jew in the medieval world. I'll be focusing in particular, but not exclusively, on this context of the Western Mediterranean. And then also on how gender also shaped people's legal status and lived experiences. So first of all, it's important to be aware when we're talking about the medieval past that there is no such concept as equal status under the law, and that religious identity is a really important category that is used to legally differentiate between people. When we are looking at legislation from the Middle Ages, we see that Jews who are always a religious minority are always going to be treated differently and have a really different status from members of the ruling faith, so either Christianity or Islam, depending on which particular polity that we're talking about. The legislation that we see is designed both to differentiate and to subordinate. So legislation includes things like requiring Jews to wear a particular kind of clothing or a distinctive badge or other marking. That would be designed to make sure that if you are walking through city streets, that you can say this person is Jewish and this person is Christian with the understanding, tacitly at least, that if it were not for these required markings, you wouldn't necessarily actually be able to tell the difference just by looking at somebody, uh, what religion that they belong to. You also see a number of things that are designed to really kind of emphasize subordinate status so that, for example, the homes and houses of worship of Jews have to be lower to the ground and less elaborate, at least on the exterior, in comparison with the houses of worship and the homes of people who belong to the ruling faith. You also see legislation that is designed to prevent Jews from having any kind of formal legal authority over members of the ruling faith, so that, for example, Jews can't hold political positions that might give them authority over Christians or over Muslims, that Jews also would not be allowed to own Christian slaves, for example, in a place that's under Christian rule, or even potentially hire Christian servants. There's, of course, a whole an additional conversation about the relationship between legislation versus lived reality. The reality is almost always going to be more complicated when we're actually talking about questions of enforcement. But it is still significant that we have this legal system in place that defines Jews as being both legally distinct and as legally subordinate to whoever the ruling faith is. And this, of course, is also true of the experience of Christians living under Muslim rule and of Muslims living under Christian rule. One of the other things is as well that I'm interested in when I'm thinking about the lived experiences of medieval Jewish communities and of the people who belong to those communities is that on an everyday level, Jews are not necessarily experiencing the really dramatic moments of persecution that we associate perhaps with the medieval past. So that often when people think about medieval Jewish history, they might think about horrific moments like, for example, the massacres in the context of the Crusades in the Rhineland in 1096. Or we might think about, say, the expulsion from the Iberian Peninsula of the Jews in 1492. These are rare enough that the vast majority of Jews would go through their entire lives without experiencing anything quite so horrific as that. 
but that I think it's really helpful to think about the lived experience of Jews from the perspective of uh, what we might call microaggressions, that there are a wide variety of everyday slights, some intentional, some unintentional, it doesn't necessarily matter which, and ways in which Jews are constantly reminded of the fact that they are different and subordinate. And these would both be things, as I said, that are that are intentional, that people that are part of the legal system and that people are making sure is enforced and pressed upon their Jewish neighbors, but also smaller things as well in terms of essentially how people might interact with you being aware that you might be a member of this religious minority. So in other words, that when we're thinking about lived experiences of Jews, it's worth thinking about what it might be like to be asked to behave in certain ways that you're supposed to bow if you see a Christian religious procession, for example. You are supposed to be quieter in uh, both Christian and Muslim countries that you're supposed to uh, be, avoid making too much noise when you're praying. You are also supposed to, in a number of contexts, to wear certain clothing. And that the point of this clothing, again, would be that people can recognize you on the street. How do those people then treat you differently? To what extent are you constantly thinking about as well if you have an interaction which is perhaps a bit unpleasant with somebody and then are going over that in your mind? You know, is that because they recognized me as being a Jew that they chose to treat me in this particular way? Gender also functions as the basis for a distinct legal status in pretty much every different medieval legal system, at least if we're talking certainly about Europe and the Middle East. Men and women, we typically don't necessarily have that much overt acknowledgement of people who might not fall easily into those categories, but that men and women have a distinct status in terms of things like property ownership, in terms of things like inheritance, in terms of things like expectation for work and whether you might be able to belong to a guild, that gender shapes all of these things and that gender therefore functions to construct one's legal experience. Gender also, unsurprisingly, affects the way that you might be perceived by the people around you. If you are a woman, whether you are a queen or a member of the nobility, whether you are a merchant, whether you're selling fish at the market, or whether you're a seamstress, that you might be treated differently from men who hold similar positions, essentially, that you're going to be treated differently from men of your own status. The last piece of background I wanted to mention is that when I say that gender functions as a basis for a distinct legal status in most legal systems, I'm also including in that the legal system of Jewish law or halakha. When we're talking about medieval Jewish communities, one of the other aspects of the distinct legal status of Jews is that, and again, this is true in both Christian and Muslim contexts, Jews have the right of self-governance. So essentially what this means is that when we're talking about internal affairs within the Jewish community, that they get to govern themselves in accordance with Jewish law. People today often think about Jewish law as something that governs essentially religious practice and ritual. But Jewish law is in fact a much wider legal system. That Jewish law also includes a very wide array of civil and criminal law. And so medieval Jewish communities then have this right to govern themselves in accordance with Jewish law, in accordance with halakha, in generally things that are internal, so matters that are between Jews, 
Civil law pretty much always falls into this category. So for example, things like marriage, uh, things like business dealings that are internal to the Jewish community, these would be things that pretty much any Jewish community could expect that they would receive the privilege to govern themselves in accordance with Jewish law. In some places, uh, Jewish communities even have the right of criminal jurisdiction in cases that only involve Jews. Jewish law, therefore, has a really significant effect on Jewish women as at an everyday level. And this is another aspect, of course, of the ways in which Jewish women have experiences that are really fundamentally distinct from both the experiences of uh, Christian or Muslim women and the experiences of Jewish men. That a major piece of this is the fact that halakha, that Jewish law, treats women very, very differently from a religious perspective, from a social perspective, that they are treated very, very differently from Jewish men, but that also that we can see ways in which the status that women have under halakha is not necessarily the same as the legal status that Christian or Muslim women might have under whatever the kind of local legal system is. For the rest of the time that we have today, I'm going to talk about how using an intersectional framework that incorporates Jewish women into the conversation about both Jewish history and about women's and gender history in the medieval world, that this can allow us to enrich our understanding of both of these fields. So I'm going to now talk through a few examples of this and of what can be added by including Jewish women in the conversation. I'm going to be, through most of this, drawing a lot on my own particular area of research. And because of that, I'm going to be focusing in particular, but not exclusively, on the experiences of Jewish women in the Western Mediterranean. The first example that I want to talk about, and this is one that is extremely close to my own heart, is the example of women's work and how we think about and assess women's work in the Middle Ages. Women's work in general is not unusual. Most women worked in some capacity, and that seeing women working in a variety of different ways would probably not have been unusual for people living in the medieval world, and this is true for women of all faiths. That being said, one of the things that I found really striking when doing research for my book project was that Jewish and Christian women's work looks really different in the sources that we have. The sources that I worked with mostly for this project are notarial registers. The notaries are both legal professionals and public officials, and they had expertise in drawing up a wide array of contracts, and they kept copies of these contracts for their own records in these big registers on paper. And so basically what we have from the I looked in particular at the 13th and 14th centuries, but this is true for later centuries as well. We have in a lot of different cities in the Western Mediterranean, literally thousands of contracts. And this means that we can say a lot about different kinds of business practices and different kinds of social networks and all sorts of things. That There's all sorts of really rich things that scholars have been able to do with notarial registers. 
One of the big pieces of my project was thinking about in particular what kinds of work are visible or not in the notarial registers. So there were some kinds of women's work that I just didn't really talk about quite as much because they're the kinds of things that wouldn't end up creating a notarial contract. So for example, if you... I think I used the example earlier, if you sell fish at market or some other kind of work where basically you're immediately exchanging goods for cash, you're probably not necessarily going to go to the trouble of having a contract created to record that. So that means that it's now often going to end up being invisible to us as scholars when we try to try and look back on that work. In addition to acknowledging that there are certain kinds of work that we can't see, I was also really interested in the context of this project in thinking about what gets counted as work and what doesn't. And one of the big pieces of the argument that I wanted to make there was that part of women's work includes basically household management. This encompasses both traditional things like domestic labor, so cooking, cleaning, child care, when we're talking about women of lower or middling status, and for women who are elite, then perhaps supervising the staff who then actually does, who then in practice actually does a lot of that work. But also that women's labor, that women's work in managing the household is also financial labor, that part of the work that women do is that they are expected to do certain kinds of work, at least in certain moments, to manage household assets. And this includes things like making loans. This includes things like buying and selling and renting out property and includes things like making commercial investments. And these are things that are in particular tend to be really well documented in the sources that I have at my disposal. When I first started this project, I expected to see a lot of similarities between the kinds of work being done by Jewish women and by Christian women. And instead, what I ended up seeing was that Jewish and Christian women's work looks really different. And in particular, that Jewish women seem to have significantly fewer work opportunities than Christian women. So in pretty much every sphere that I was looking at of economic life, making loans in terms of things like buying and selling property, in terms of commercial investments, in terms of artisans who seem to be buying goods on credit and taking on apprentices, Jewish women are much less prominent than Christian women. And this is something that is not just coming out in terms of the fact that obviously there are fewer total Jewish women that I see because That would, of course, make sense because Jews are a minority community. They're a relatively small proportion of the population. But that when I compared Christian women to Christian men and said, okay, 10% of the loans made by Christians are made by Christian women, in contrast, I would then compare Jewish women directly with Jewish men and see that, in contrast, Jewish women are extending 2% of the loans that are made by Jews. I found all this striking for a few different reasons. First of all, that we really get this really fascinating and rich picture, if we're talking about Christian women in particular, of work and of families really relying on women to play a really important role in managing household assets. And as well, that there is a sense is that families, for example, also trust women to have apprentices. And that there's a certain normalization as well of things like women managing their own workshops, which might be in trades that have completely nothing to do with what their husbands do. 
that it was not abnormal for women to work professionally as bakers, as weavers, as seamstresses. The textile trades and food trades are especially common, but uh, we see some other things. We see some leather workers, for example. When you see that without any particular fanfare, we have women who are taking on apprentices and we have women who are buying raw materials for their trade on credit, that you really get this clear sense that women's work is something that to some extent you can kind of take for granted. But that that's much more true for Christian women than it is for Jewish women. In part, this I think reflects the fact that Jewish women are less likely ultimately to be engaged in kinds of work that involve interactions with members of the Christian majority. And this includes both the notaries themselves so that Jewish women, I suggest, might be less likely to be involved in kinds of work that would involve that would require you to regularly go to the notary, who is always going to be a Christian man, and also kinds of work that mean that you're primarily working with Christian clients or business partners. So that maybe it's that Jewish women are less likely to do that kind of work and more likely to do kinds of work that are internal to the Jewish community. But that's still pretty significant, and it's more significant than Christian women perhaps facing the same kind of restriction or expectation, because being told or being subject to a kind to social expectations that you can only work with people who belong to your particular faith group, that's a really different proposition when your faith group is most of the population versus when your faith group is a really tiny percentage of the population, that that's a really limiting restriction socially, not legally, but socially on Jewish women's work if they are discouraged perhaps from frequent interactions through their work with Christians or in particular work with Christian men. It's also something that I think reflects differences in the legal status of Jewish women versus Christian women in Catalonia in particular, that in this particular context, when we compare the ways in which Catalan legal texts and Catalan courts understand the claims that women have both as daughters with heirs on the on family property or the claims that wives have over their husbands over their husbands' estates, that in general we see that Catalan Christian custom envisions a much broader role for women as managers and owners of wealth than Jewish law in this particular regional context tends to. The fact that Jewish and Christian women's work looks really different is something that I find very significant in that it means that we need to be really careful about making assumptions about the about the idea that this is what women's work looked like or this is what women's work is that not only are there really obvious ways that people have been aware of for a long time about how women's work looks really different depending on your socioeconomic status that it's also something that in terms of the documentation i was finding that looks really different for jewish women versus christian women so that uh, we kind of see these categories intersecting and this includes things as well. I will say that, you know, when we're kind of talking about things like managing workshops, that Christian women we see all the time taking on apprentices. We see Christian women who clearly have their own workshop and are buying independently goods on credit or receiving commercial loans. That Jewish women, I have no examples of them actually taking on apprentices, and I don't have any records of Jewish girls who are working as apprentices. 
And I also don't have any documentation of Jewish women who appear to have a workshop independently as opposed to with their husband. So that is also a kind of really striking distinction. In terms of thinking also as well about our ideas about what constitutes Jewish work, but that also really gets complicated when you think about Jewish women together with both Christian women and Jewish men and think about the different lived experiences of people who belong to these different groups. Credit or money lending is often thought about as this kind of quintessential form of Jewish work. That is an understanding that is very kind of deeply rooted in a lot of stereotypes, a lot of which are about links in in the Christian imagination between Jews and money, rather than about the reality of Jewish economic life that we know in the Mediterranean in particular, that Jews are doing a lot of different things, that we see Jews involved in the buying and selling of real estate, we see Jews who work in the silk industry and the coral cutting industry. We also know that there were Jewish farmers. We know that there are Jews who are poor. Jewish money lending is often something that gets talked about frequently, both because of these stereotypes, but also because Jewish money lending tends to be really well documented. So going back to the question of the notaries and why you would decide to go to a notary, one big reason why you would decide to go to a notary is if you lend somebody money and you want proof that you have lent the money in the hopes that they will eventually pay you back. So that means that loans in general tend to be, I would say, probably over-documented relative to their importance as a form of economic life for everybody in the notarial documentation, but especially for Jews, because Jews are actually legally required to register loans with Christian notaries. But when we turn to Jewish women, we see that in terms of the actual public act of lending, of being the primary person listed on a loan. Jewish women are, in most of the examples I looked at, only extending about 2% of total loans. And that, I think, is something that should be a really important part of us thinking about how we reassess what we define as Jewish work, that we already have known that Jewish work included a lot of things in addition to money lending. But I think it's important to think about how, at least in this particular region, how Jewish money lending is something that, in addition to probably being practiced mostly by wealthier Jews rather than by Jews who are lower down on the socioeconomic scale, that it's also something that's practiced almost exclusively by Jewish men and that therefore Jewish women's work versus Jewish men's work can potentially mean really different things. Jewish women's work also relatedly tends to be less visible. Bringing Jewish women into the conversation also allows us to think really differently about the racialization of Jews, about the ways in which Christians in particular, increasingly as we look at the in the 13th and 14th centuries, seem to conceptualize Jews as being not just religiously different, but as some kind of racial and ethnic other, and as they seem to develop an idea that Jewishness isn't something that can be washed away by baptism. As some scholars have noted, uh, so I'm thinking about the work of Sarah Lipton in particular, we see developing uh, over the course of, as I said, in particular, the 13th and 14th centuries, a lot of visual ways uh, in which Jews are defined as being different and are identified as Jews in Christian art. This includes that Jews are often presented as wearing these pointed hats, despite there not being a lot of evidence that this is something that Jews actually wore. Not only Jewish men are bearded, but that virtually all Jewish men are bearded. Increasingly, we see 
both hooked noses and slightly darker skin, also being used to differentiate Jews from Christians in visual images. These are all really striking elements in the depiction of Jewish men, but Jewish women, in contrast, are rarely physically differentiated either by physical features or by clothing in Christian art, that they tend to be indistinguishable for, from Christian women, and you can only tell the difference. You can only tell that they're supposed to be Jews based on context. You only really see exceptions to this starting in about the late 15th century, where you start to see more physical differentiation in depictions of Jewish women. Relatedly, and as well, when we think about a lot of the extremely hostile stories uh, that Christians told themselves about Jews, accusations of ritual murder, the false claims that Jews murdered Christian children, including the blood libel that they would then use the blood of these Christian children to make matzah, thinking about the claim as well of host desecration, that Jews were accused of stealing a consecrated host, so something that had then become the body of Christ and stabbing it. In these false accusations, these stories that Christians told about Jews in order to make them into these terrifying figures and to then cast Christians as victims, those stories also almost always feature exclusively or primarily Jewish men, not Jewish women. This is something I'm actually going to be thinking about more in an upcoming project. And so I'm only going to kind of draw attention to the kind of general question or problem now. But I think it is really striking that the story of Christian anti-Judaism and in particular of how the racialization of Jews is part of that is a story that is in fact really, really gendered, that it's a story that might impact in some ways Jewish women, but that it is nevertheless a story that relies mostly on constructions which are based in the bodies of Jewish men. If we go back to thinking about comparisons that we might make between Jewish and Christian women, we also find some really interesting contrasts that require us to reevaluate how we're talking about, quote, women's experiences during the Middle Ages. Here I'm thinking in particular about religious life. One really fruitful avenue for scholarship on women and gender in the Middle Ages has been the religious experiences of Christian women, both in terms of popular religion, but to an even greater degree, the proliferation of women mystics and of women saints in the later Middle Ages. Even though nobody would argue that Christianity is devoid of misogyny or anything like that, or even that women really have an opportunity to be religiously equal to men within Christianity in the Middle Ages, because very clearly there are things that men can do that women can't, we still have this really rich understanding of women as being able to carve out a space for themselves, both to participate in religious life, but also to serve as these religious professionals who are these extremely well-respected and in fact venerated figures. And these figures were understood as having a really special and distinct relationship with God. In contrast, at least according to the sources that survive, while we do have some insight into Jewish women's piety and into ways in which Jewish women 
develop their own traditions of popular religion, these being traditions that are shaped both by halakha, by Jewish law, but also traditions that are shaped by interactions with uh, people of other faiths, and in particular, perhaps with women of other faiths, as Elisheva Baumgarten has less argued for Northern Europe. But that we don't have Jewish women mystics, or at least not a major tradition of Jewish women's mysticism that is honored and accepted and valued within basically the mainstream Jewish community. That's not something that we see when we're looking at Jewish communities in the same times and places as uh, these many Christian women mystics and saints that we're aware of. Again, this points to the fact that if his scholars were interested in women's religion in the Middle Ages and women's religious life or spiritual life in the Middle Ages, we often don't say Christian women's spiritual life. We just say women's spiritual life when what we mean is Christian women. And introducing Jewish women into this framework can allow us to think about what women's spirituality was in more complicated ways and can allow us to think really perhaps specifically about what might explain why it is that even though both Christianity and Judaism are religious traditions that have their fair share of misogyny, why it is that Christianity allowed this space for women, whereas Judaism really did not. The final example that I wanted to bring into the conversation today is the question of how we assess more broadly the good and bad moments for Jews. And it's something that you often see in Jewish history, that certain moments are identified as being a golden age for the Jews, or even as we've kind of moved away from that terminology as being kind of better or worse periods for the Jewish community, as being periods of greater security, that if we include the experience of Jewish women, that our understanding overall of these periods and of how we assess these periods could potentially be really different. Stephanie Sigmund, a scholar of early modern Italy, made the really interesting argument that these periods of growing Jewish authority and self-governance, something that's often seen as being good for the Jewish community, means that we also at the same time see Jewish communal leaders cracking down on women in a number of ways on the social and economic power that women have within the Jewish community. I found this argument really useful in my own work when looking at this period in Catalonia that has previously been described as something of a golden age, uh, in particular by the scholar Yom Tobasis, and that one of the reasons it's seen as a golden age is because of the success of the Jewish community in governing itself and of freeing itself from these exterior influences. One of the suggestions that I make in my work is that because of the ways in which Jewish law is in fact more restrictive than the legal system of the Christians around them, strong self-governing Jewish communities are in some ways not necessarily so great for women, that it might be useful to think about how women might have experienced these eras differently. Even if we don't necessarily go so far as to say that golden ages for Jewish men were bad for Jewish women, we can still question the extent to which Jewish women actually can take advantage of the supposed benefits of golden ages. So for example, if we turn instead to the most famous, quote, Jewish golden age in the Iberian Peninsula that 
as we still often have uh, presented a relatively rosy picture of uh, the social integration of Jews in Muslim-ruled Al-Andalus, that the only clear beneficiaries of that integration are elite Jewish men, that it's an integration that we see in the form generally of participation in high culture, of shared traditions of poetry and philosophy. And so how can we assess this period differently if we instead think about Jewish women who are not participating in these traditions in the way that men are? I hope over the course of this podcast, I have at least in part convinced you all that thinking about the multicultural Middle Ages can usefully incorporate Jewish women. How might scholars of Jewish history complicate our understandings of Jewish culture, of Jewish religious life, of the success or power of Jewish communities by including the lived experiences of Jewish women? Additionally, how can we as scholars of women and gender How can our overall understanding of the lived experience of women in the Middle Ages be complicated and nuanced by thinking about the distinct lived experiences of Jewish women versus Christian women or Muslim women? I hope that our understandings of a multicultural Middle Ages can usefully incorporate the rich scholarship that increasingly is available that explores the lives of medieval Jewish women in a variety of different regions. So in particular, I wanted to mention Eve Krakowski, who's doing excellent work on medieval Egypt, Elisheva Baumgarten working on Northern Europe, and Dana Wessel Lightfoot and Alexander Gerson, who are doing some really interesting things on Jewish and Conversa women in Catalonia. I hope also that you have enjoyed today's podcast. If you're interested in hearing more about me and my work, you can follow me on Twitter at Sarah Iftdecker. And if you want to hear more of me podcasting, you can hear me talking about the Middle Ages from a slightly different angle on my podcast, Media Evil, a medieval pop culture podcast, where I talk about media representations of the Middle Ages. So thank you all for listening to today's episode of the Multicultural Middle Ages podcast. This has been an episode of the Multicultural Middle Ages, an anthology-style podcast series brought to you by the Graduate Student Committee of the Medieval Academy of America. Season 2 was produced by Will Beatty, Jonathan Correa-Reyes, Reed O'Mara, and Logan Quigley. Music is by Anna O'Connell.